1: Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. We're moving right through it because Evan is going to his daughter's daycare graduation, pre-K graduation. I don't even know what it is. He's got to go. I'm going to tell you go, guys who's go, on the go, show go, today. Go, go,
0: go, 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 go.
1: Today on the show, Hannah Goldfield. She's the food critic at The New Yorker. She writes the Tables for Two column. It comes out every week. She reviews a different restaurant in New York. We talked about that job, how you do it, how it changed in the pandemic, how you find different words to describe things that are crunchy we talked about it all it's a fascinating job she was great to talk to i enjoyed it thoroughly
0: i love the pace we're operating right now i think we should adopt this as our pace going forward we're brought to you in partnership with vox media they help us make the show thanks to them and congratulations to juno for graduating from 3k and now here's max with hannah
1: goldfield you slowed it down at the end Hi, Hannah. Hi. Uh, thanks for doing the podcast. Sure.
2: I'm honored to be here.
1: Uh, I have so many questions about your job. Okay. There's all these things about being a food critic that I don't understand. I've talked to a couple of people over the years on the show who do the job, although I think you do it like slightly different than they do. But I, uh, in doing some research before this, I learned that you have wanted to be a food critic for a long time. <laughs> so I was wondering if we could start with your... Uh, your origin story your food critic origin story yes
2: I I mean I was I loved eating as a kid it was just sort of an obsession for me from a very young age um, and as I remember it of course some of this has to be apocryphal but <laughs> the story that I've always told myself and none of this and is and gonna get fact uh, yeah okay good you can call my parents uh, I saw the movie my best friend's wedding in the theater. I've I, I have fact checked this. It came out in 1996, so I would have been 10 or turning 10. Um, and in it, Julia Roberts plays a food critic, and in an, like wildly unrealistic way, where it's just like this total like farce of of what any food critic has ever done. But that's her job, and it, the movie spends literally the first five minutes on it and it's never discussed again. <laughs> but I was just like gobsmacked by the idea that that this was a job I knew that it was a real job Um, and after that decided that that was what I wanted to be when I when I grew up Um, and at the time Ruth Rachel was the uh, restaurant critic for the Times and she just seemed like this really cool person she was a writer she was a woman it just seemed like a job that I could do and my dad was very encouraging of me reading her review every week. You know, he got the times delivered. So every Wednesday I would excitedly open up the paper um, and read the review. I remember him urging me to write restaurant reviews, which I declined to do. Cause you that, do that was like work. Um, no, I, I, I just read it until high school when I um, was an intern at like the, you know, weekly alternative newspaper um, and they assigned me my first restaurant review. So, my first restaurant review was published when I was 15 in the New Haven Advocate. Um, what, and did, what did you review? I reviewed a kosher deli. <laughs> I don't remember why that was the assignment. I don't know that they even ran regular restaurant reviews, but somehow they sent me to this kosher deli.
1: There was just a burning desire I, I guess to get the. It does. It seems, deli it seems
2: really odd now because I. I don't even think it was new. Maybe they had just expanded or something. It was actually, like, owned by a classmate's <laughs> parents. Um, <laughs> it was owned by the publisher of the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I do. I am now, like, was there some kind of backdoor dealings going on here? Um, but it was, like, in a strip mall. And, like, looking back, it was very, like, like you know, Jonathan Gold or something because it was, it was not really a restaurant. It was, like, it was very, like, culturally sort of different than than what was going on in the in like the more traditional restaurants in downtown New Haven that would have made more sense to write about um, given the context of a restaurant review but yeah I went to this to this I think it was called the Westville kosher meat market it's now closed and they had like prepared foods that you could eat in but mostly it was like a grocery like a small specialty grocery store and I remember eating in and also taking stuff home and writing about the whole experience and and then i didn't write another restaurant review until i was had graduated college i remember in in college realizing that i wasn't the only person who wanted to be a food writer and deciding that i had to give up my dreams of being a food writer cuz i didn't want I like just the the like barest hint of competition sent me like cowering really? into the corner i was like oh god like no i got to do something else because it's too it's too much of a thing to want to be a food writer. It was like, you know, it's like it's like when you realize other people like your favorite band and suddenly it's ruined for you. I was like, I'm not the only, like, Jewish girl from, you know, Connecticut who thinks Ruth Reichel is amazing. This is horrible. <laughs> I, gotta, I need I need a whole other career plan. Um, but then I uh, became an intern at The New Yorker and then a fact checker at The New Yorker. And that led to writing Tables for Two, um, in my sort of first go-around, I did it as one of several staff members who kind of took turns writing the column every week. Um, so I, I found my way back to it and resumed my my childhood <laughs> <laughs> fantasy. <laughs> amazingly, <laughs>
1: once you had the job, you were willing to not compete for the exactly. job.
2: Exactly. <laughs> I was like, okay, this has basically fallen into my lap. So I can't. <laughs> I, I can no longer deny that it's what I still want to do.
1: Did you pan the kosher deli?
2: <laughs> no, I gave it a I gave it a rave <laughs> review, and I like I was very like chatty. I, I actually read it reread it recently because my parents are moving, and and my mom like has saved everything I've ever written, so I revisited it, and I was I was I like wrote about my family. I was I was very cheerful and just kind of positive, which is you know suited the the format I think.
1: <laughs> did it feel like your uh, Did it feel like yourself?
2: Yeah, it did. I mean, it felt like my 15 year old self. Like, I was like, I, I feel like as an adult, I'm much more conscious of trying not to be corny, and I don't always succeed. But, like, as a 15 year old, I was like so incredibly corny. You know, <laughs> I like, I made lots of like, because I was a total dorky 15 year old, and I made lots of kind of dorky jokes. And I was, and I was very, I think I was writing for adults. Like, I felt like I'd been given this, um, I was this very young person um, amongst all these adults doing these adult things, so I was trying to, like, impress the adults in the way of, like, you know, a kid at a cocktail party or something, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. trying to f- seem older than I was.
1: Well, I'm hoping that this is actually a decent bridge to your work now, but uh, I feel like I have to ask, what was so off in my best friend's wedding about her <laughs> job as a, as a restaurant? Yeah,
2: I mean, I mean, I I, I guess I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I've actually been thinking a lot about wanting to know more about kind of the history of the restaurant critic but i don't think there was ever a time where it was functioning as it does in the movie which is like she's sitting she's sitting at a table with her i guess he's her friend um and it's just like everyone knows that she's there and why she's there and who she is like she's not in any way trying to to fly under the radar it seems like she booked the table through the restaurant and said, like, I'm coming in to review the restaurant. Actually, as I'm remembering the scene, I I know that she did that because she's sitting there and all the chefs are looking through like a porthole window from the kitchen and watching as she lifts a fork and takes a bite. And then she very like clearly and loudly announces what what she's going to say about the (laughs) the, she's (laughs) like, I'm I can't remember exactly what she says, but she's like, I'm declaring it like elegant and but yet restrained or something like it's like and everyone's like (gasps) like there's this audible sigh of relief (laughs) from everyone in the kitchen and they're all just hanging on her every word it's just like that would never it's just a very cartoonish depiction yeah, I mean
1: the only other thing that it uh, reminds me of is an actual cartoon, which is like that's yes. how the food critic in exactly. like, Ratatouille works.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Or but but even more so because it's I, I think in Ratatouille I think he he's anonymous or he at least like like no one knows his real name, right? I feel like or no, no one knows anything about him. I yeah. Can't but he remember. like comes in and then yeah, like, it's they're him. like well, right? And yeah. like and there are always restaurants a certain kind of restaurant is always looking for a critic, so yeah. it's not. That's not that's not the issue. It's the the issue is that she is not even pretending like <laughs> you know, it's not all just out and in the open.
1: Do you take steps to remain anonymous?
2: Um, sort of. I I I feels like the general consensus among restaurant critics today is kind of in terms of how to comport yourself, is try not to let them know you're coming, but don't go to great pains to like literally disguise yourself, which is a thing. That allegedly, restaurant critics used to do. I mean, Ruth Rachel wrote a whole book about wearing disguises, which I I, I have no reason not to believe her, but it's I, it like boggles the mind the just effort to which she writes about going to disguise herself, wigs. It's 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 it sounds like the scene in Mrs. Doubtfire where Robin <laughs> Williams goes and has all of he's fitted for different wigs and prosthetics. I mean, I, I believe that she did it. It just seems so crazy to me. Um, just
1: over the top, like you, yeah. You, you, you can't wrap your head around why someone would do that
2: I mean it it seems fun, <laughs> and I guess it's like yeah if if you really want to be anonymous, that's what you have to do, but I guess i at least in the context of today, I don't really understand why you would need to be that anonymous i guess I guess her argument was that she didn't want any special treatment, and she wanted to really see what it was like to be someone who was perceived to just be like, you know, a, a, a nobody off the street. And she wrote one particularly like famous review where she compared, she had like a wildly different experience coming in as herself and coming in as like, um,
1: Mrs. Delphire. Mrs.
2: Delphire. Basically. I, I actually think she, it was like a character, a sort of character modeled after like one of her mother's friends or something. And so she made herself look much older and a little like infirm and just kind of like a person who might not be treated with the same level of decorum as someone, you know, more important. Um, and, and and in that sense, so maybe it was like it was it's sort of like a she was conducting a sociological experiment. So but that feels kind of like a different thing.
1: I mean, do people know who you are?
2: Yes. Um, some of them, you know, it's like so. So I I, I don't make reservations under my own name. Um, I've never worn a disguise. <laughs> uh, I've definitely been recognized in Ways that I've noticed, you know, like, I guess I just feel I feel like restaurants now, I, I, I don't know, I, I can't I can't imagine that this wasn't true in the 80s. But I feel like restaurants take everything so seriously now and they and restaurants that are good or tr- that are trying to be like of a certain caliber are really trying to treat everyone with the same level of respect and they're taking the food so seriously that I, I just, I don't think there's a scenario where they're like slinging things lazily for most people, but then somebody important comes in and they suddenly like pull out the good ingredients that they were hiding oh, in the back. You know, idea. like...
1: So you, your feeling is basically like most places are doing as well as they can.
2: I think so. Or like, like, maybe not most places, but the kinds of places that I would write about. Like places that are buzzy and have you know chefs that are really respected and 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 places that yeah places that are just taking it all really seriously
1: you think restaurants take themselves more seriously now than they did
2: I don't know but my my guess is yes because I think the restaurant industry has just changed so much that people care way more about restaurants just like and I'm talking about like just the this huge arc of like the rise of the celebrity chef and then of course like the internet and and the rise of everyone and their mother being a food critic by virtue of, you know, signing on to Yelp or any other website that does ratings. um I do think that it, yes, that that restaurants just like that the whole industry just became more serious. Not that there weren't always restaurants and that it wasn't always a big business. It just feels like it's a different beast than it than it was.
1: do you feel a responsibility? in that ecosystem like do you think of yourself as part of it or outside of it
2: i think of myself as having a foot in it i guess i don't know i i guess i've never thought about that so explicitly i mean i feel in the last god how long has the pandemic been going on two years longer than somewhere between two and a thousand yeah years. yeah i i feel more i feel more of like a clear purpose since the pandemic. And, and an obligation to encourage people to eat at restaurants, I think. Um, so I think about this a lot. Like I, I have not said anything remotely negative about a restaurant in the past two years. I
1: I, I know that to be true. Yeah. Because I read them all and I <laughs> was just waiting for like the pan. <laughs> and I just wanted to eat at every single <laughs> right. Every single well, if you go review. back a
2: little farther, you can find some some pans. Um but since, you know, March of 2020, I have not given a pan and I have not said anything unkind. I don't think the, the most unkind of I, I got was um, in what I thought was a very loving review of the Odeon. Um, but it was also like I felt like I could because it's such an, an establishment and it's, and it's an institution, really, like I was a little kind of snarky, not about. Not about the food or about the way the business is run, but just sort of about, like, the the vibe there. You know, I made some jokes about in restaurants like that there's a, um, you know, there are, like, prime tables where people of note are automatically seated and then everyone else gets kind of, like, put in dark corners where no one else wants to sit. And I, um, I joked that that dynamic had been transferred to the outdoor seating and got a little, like, Fanciful in, in describing the, the worst tables, and said that it was where like you know line cooks took their smoke breaks, and and it was where they loaded vegetables in and out of the restaurant. Um, and those things turned out not to be true, and the uh, owner of the Odeon was just infuriated and wrote a letter to the um, the local Tribeca paper. You know arguing that I had like besmirched her good name and insisting that none of the chefs even smoked (laughs) and they certainly wouldn't be smoking outside the door um anyway I I did not think that was a negative review but that was the that was the the meanest I've gotten in the past two years um
1: did you issue a correction
2: we uh, I think we I think we did actually I think we changed the wording on the online version slightly and and I think attached a correction at the bottom of the online version um but yeah, I so I just feel like you can't kick someone when they're down, and right now, still restaurants are are down. So, if I've gone to a place that I thought was really terrible, I've just not written about it. Um, you just bagged it. Yeah, which I sort of like.
1: Even I, like a prominent place.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I I I was just thinking that I'm now at the point where I would maybe. Dip a toe back into being a little snarky. Uh, I went to a place last night. In fact, that I may or may not write about, so I won't say too much about it. But I was sort of like, I think this place could could take a little bit of a of a burn. Um,
1: do you do you miss that part of the job?
2: Definitely. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, that's one of the most fun things is to is to be a little arch. Um, and I've definitely been just mostly earnest. Um, for years now um, <laughs> but I mean like in, in a way that was refreshing I think because I think it, it can get you can get tired of being too arch and I feel like there was something kind of relaxing about feeling just clear about what I was doing, you know like not like I guess having to be less being a critic is like it's a it's a weighty thing you know you have to you have to defend your own thoughts in a way that you don't if you're just doing like straight reporting Mm -hmm. um which is more of what I was doing like I started during the pandemic to interview chefs and owners and um and made the column for a while really more of just like a little reported snapshot where I was telling someone's story and I felt like yeah I just felt this sort of clear mandate to like stoke people into keeping these places going um and keeping the industry kind of alive.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant, and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a
1: that thing you were just saying about having to defend your thoughts do you just know what you think when you take a bite of something like do you have doubt or is there no no static in your taste
2: that's i don't i don't know i so so i guess i guess the fact that i don't know means that i don't have doubt <laughs> yeah um but i also think i also think if you look closely i mean i hope this is what i'm this is what i'm going for is that if you look closely at what i'm saying about the food i'm not i'm not only you know declaring value judgments i'm trying to describe it in such a like thorough and layered way that the reader hopefully is able to figure out if they would like it you know it's like if i describe the texture of something and the smell of something and how something tastes and what it looks like um i'm hoping that like you know, it'll come across if I like it or don't like it, but also that I'm giving enough information so that you'll be able to tell, like, you know, well, that's not the kind of thing that I usually go for. Like, that sounds good or it doesn't sound good. I don't like things that, you know, remind me of what you said this dish reminds you of. You know, like, I think it's all about sort of giving space for someone to make their own judgments.
1: Is it challenging to come up with uniquely descriptive language when you're doing this every week.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. I was just discussing this last night with um, a friend and like that challenge is, it can be a lot of fun. And one thing that excites me about a certain kind of restaurant is that it kind of, some dishes lend themselves to surprising descriptions. And so I'll find that while I'm eating something, like the poetry just kind of presents itself. I'll be like, oh, this reminds me of this you know, experience or like I, I'll i just I'll have sort of like phrases that will just pop into my head. And that's when I'll take notes. And I like that's always a very kind of light bulb over the head.
1: Right. So the, the food itself can inspire. Yeah. The language.
2: Yes. And that's like and those are moments when I'm like, oh, yeah, like food really is an art form because I feel like it's it's like I'm just like I'm just the messenger. Like I I mean, it it feels like I'm not having to work that hard, um, whereas other times I will just struggle for literally hours to to figure out how to describe something that's like necessary to describe for the sake of the review but isn't that interesting. And the thing I was talking about with a friend last night is how there are just only so many ways to say crunchy. yeah. There's crunchy, there's crisp, there's crispy. You can say something crackles. <laughs> and that's kind of it. Like it's right. really, really hard. And a lot of things are crunchy. It's like it's it's a really specific sensation that needs to be described. But I've had moments where I'm like, I can't say crunchy again in a <laughs> sentence. What am I going to do? How do I get this across? Um, so, yes, that is definitely one of the harder things about writing about food
1: it seems really tough to me yeah like it's just like uh delicious like how uh, how how many, how well, many ways I'd, can you say good
2: ideally you don't want to say delicious or good because th- again that like that's like that's the kind of just bland value judgment that you want to avoid but right. sometimes i do want to just be like this is really good, really <laughs> like, good. these are good this is yeah. great this is wonderful fantastic spectacular well i
1: feel like that i mean not necessarily on, like, that level of superlative, but I feel like, you know, you've reviewed, like, takeout burger joints. Yeah. You know? And there's a lot of, like, crispy and, you know, like, uh, much better adjectives that I can think of in this moment. But they're, on some level, the column is basically, like, it's really good.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, exactly- this yeah, This totally. burger and
1: fries. Right. Fucking, fucking delicious. Right,
2: right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's only so much you can say, yeah, about a food that everyone... Has probably tried. There isn't anything I can really tell you about burger and fries that you didn't already know. Although, again, like there are situations where, you know, the food itself lends itself to delving a little deeper. Like I wrote about um, this fish and chips place that is now turned into like a full sit down restaurant. And the process for making the chips, also known as French fries, was so involved. And to me, fascinating that I actually ended up like just writing a whole paragraph about how this guy made these French fries. And he like he had all of these reference points. He had gotten this one method from this person and another from another. Like, I, I guess it was the not just the chips. It was the fish, too. But that ended up being like a way to tell people something that they didn't know about French fries. But yes, and there are a lot of times when I feel like there is not that much to say about the food itself. And in those scenarios, you know, I think I'm, I often describe Tables for Two as as being like a talk of the town story about a restaurant. And so I feel like I do have the freedom to kind of fall back on, you know, just trying to capture the scene, Mm -hmm. capture a moment of time in New York City at a certain kind of place. So I'm always like thrilled when I overhear some other diner saying something really funny. Um, It's gotten a little harder to do that, I think, during COVID, because people just aren't, like, in the world in the same way that they were. I feel like there isn't as much interaction between the guests in a restaurant.
1: Although I also feel like restaurants have, at least for me, taken on this totally different significance Hmm. where, like, when I have had a great experience indoors at a restaurant it is like at a full restaurant (laughs) that's like loud yeah it feels like time travel now
2: yeah yeah no that's definitely the case but and 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 maybe it's actually it's that i'm just kind of rusty but like i feel like i think because right even for me and i i've never i mean i there were stretches of time where i wasn't going to restaurants at all but i was never not writing about them um i would write about takeout or all kinds of pop-ups and things, but I do feel like I'm still pretty new to indoor dining and it's overstimulating, (laughs) you know? It's like, just like, I remember the first time I went to a restaurant without a mask inside, which was, I guess, earlier this year and it had been several months. I remember feeling like I had just come out of like hiding or something. It was like, the lights were so bright and the music was so loud and it was like, just so overwhelming and, and socializing in that way so I do think that's probably like I think I probably need to regain my ability to just, just kind of like calm down and observe
1: well you know like you uh, you can lose the rhythm of these things yeah yeah you know?
2: easily and and I think restaurants lost their I think ever it's not just the diners I think the restaurants lost the rhythm to some degree too it's all like shifting and changing but I do think I do think we're moving back to something more like what it was
1: well, hopefully, you know, you'll get to a point where you're comfortable panning things again. Yes. <laughs> but but until then, as you think about the kinds of reviews that you're comfortable doing, man, I find it so interesting that you've walked away from places that you didn't feel like you could write about positively. How in touch with, like, the impact of these reviews are you? Like, are you thinking about what they could mean for the restaurants? Do you have a sense of what they mean for the restaurants? And then... To what extent do you do you let that impact your work?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, my sense has been in the, you know, four years I've been doing this job, a little more than four, that I I don't really have the ability to usually to make or break a restaurant in the way that I think the Times does, at least I think to some degree they have that ability. Um, I think it's like, I, I think do it's- Do you a,
1: wish that you did?
2: No. (laughs) That feels like a lot of power to have. I, I, yeah, it feels like, I mean, I don't know. It's such a like delicate dance because I'm sure there's something thrilling about, (laughs) I mean, there's definitely something thrilling about, about giving someone a big boost, which I know that I've done. So I, I do feel like there are places that I have really helped in a way that feels great. Like they're, Um, it's actually really recently happened in a very explicit way where I I wrote about this um, Burmese restaurant that was in a subway station in Jackson Heights. And um, it was like a little kind of coffee shop where the idea was, you know, you'd get customers who were like rushing to the subway and they'd grab literally a coffee and like a bag of chips. And the owners started to serve some Burmese salads and soups and stuff. Um, And they were getting like some attention, not much. I think I read about it, you know, on Eater and the infatuation or something and went to go check it out. And then I wrote a tables for two column about it. And I did. I wasn't really aware of what happened after that. And then a couple of months ago, I got a message on Instagram from the daughter of this couple who is very involved in the restaurant. She was like. Please come to our the opening party of our restaurant in the East Village, <laughs> and she they have like opened like the whole story of my column was how, you know, this was like they were struggling to find a place that they could afford to even have this coffee shop, um, and she and she she told me like after your review everything changed for us and and they I guess, I'm sure they have like, investors, of some kind, but they've recently opened like a proper restaurant which I have not yet been, but I'm looking forward to, to going to. Um, so there's, yeah. So like, uh, yeah, I mean, how could I feel anything but great about that? They're like these yeah. really lovely people um, who are making great food and came to New York for a better life and like suddenly <laughs> they have it and to have had any part in that feels great.
1: But there's still like, a, there's like a, an embedded answer in that answer, which is, it wasn't like you were waiting to see what happened.
2: No. It's like you happened no. to find
1: it out. So it's like a nice to have but not the no. reason to yeah, do
2: Yeah, I think that, like, I think that that would be da- a dangerous way to think about it. Like, I think that would – it would get wrapped up too much in my
1: – Well, that's why know. I ask. I mean, it seems dangerous and also, like, enticing.
2: Yeah. No, totally. No, but uh, like
1: I, I – The question is kind of like – I mean, I understand that you're saying, like, the Times has a certain power that you don't feel you have – but there is some power to that role in, in particular, like just in the choice.
2: Definitely. But I would say that my choices are very selfish. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I mean, they're selfish in like pursuit of my own goals and my goals are not to like change, you know, a restauranter's life. My goals are to make the column interesting and to keep it kind of dynamic and to make sure that I'm writing about a good mix of places from week to week in terms of price point and neighborhood and type of cuisine. Um, so that's really what I'm thinking about. And it's such a kind of breakneck pace that I'm always just like on to the next one and feeling frantic about like, <laughs> what am I going to write about this week? I've, I've not mastered the art of like planning ahead. And I mean, I'm just trying to make sure there's something to write about <laughs> <laughs> every week
1: how do you how do you pick what to write about
2: uh i read like what i sometimes refer to as like the trades although they're not i mean i read i I read eater i read infatuation i read grub street i in that way just keep track of like what's opening which you know they they do they, they do as thorough a job as they as they can i think um Although, obviously, there are just so many restaurants that are opening in New York all the time that no one is taking any notice of except the people who are walking by. It's, like, astonishing. Like, I just went to a place recently that hasn't gotten any press coverage, even in, even by these publications that are sort of keeping track. Um, and I went because a friend had literally walked by and seen, seen a grand opening sign and went and told me it was good. And so we, we all went back together. Um, I, I read those sites and then... Instagram has become a huge resource for me. I follow, like, tons and tons of food people, like people who seem like they're obsessed with restaurants and are just constantly eating out. And that's kind of how I, like, a certain type of, like, influencer who is seems to be keeping up on, like, the hot spots. And then I've found some kind of, like, people who I think 10 or 15 years ago would have had a food blog who are sort of, like, chow hounds. You know, they're, like pounding the pavement in Queens or wherever Um, it's kind of outer boroughs and chronicling what's what's happening there Um, and then and then I go try places but this is like there's like a huge like there's a huge margin of error Mm -hmm. because you can only know that a place looks interesting and then you can go there and discover that it's not interesting at all. And and I would say like more often than not, the reason that I don't write about a place is not because it's bad, but because it's just not good enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel totally uninspired, and I have nothing to say about it.
1: Right. There's no light bulb moments.
2: Exactly. It doesn't. There's no story that emerges, and I can tell immediately like I'm just gonna have nothing to say about this, and then I'm gonna sit in front of my computer and like pull my hair out because I've got nothing to say. <laughs> it's like crunchy. It's very crunchy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: How do you think about making the column feel diverse and equitable? Like you were saying, it's like different price points and different neighborhoods and different culinary traditions. But is there like an ethos to that? Is there a way that you track it and think about it?
2: It's a really good question that I don't have a great answer to. I mean, I wish there was a formula. I would make it all feel a lot easier. I kind of just go on instinct. And I think like, like I'll sort of have this feeling like, oh, I've been writing about too many of the same kinds of places. And I I, I don't even know that I could tell you exactly what I mean by that. But like, it it is sort of based on a feeling like, well, I, I guess I could tell you what I mean by that. It's like too many places that are that people like me would go to, you know, on a night after work, like a certain price point, a certain vibe, a certain neighborhood in Brooklyn or Manhattan. like those are, you know, it's it's hard not to get sort of drawn into the swan song of that. It's these like sort of buzzy, sexy places that are getting a lot of press mm-hmm. because they have high powered publicists who are who are making sure that everyone knows that they've opened. Um, so you know, lately, I feel like I've been writing a, a little bit too much about places like that and so and then I'll think like, all right, I got to just like just totally broaden my reach and drive to Queens one afternoon or see what's happening in Staten Island, which is really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting. I wonder what it was like to do this job when there was more local news, um, because I have tried so hard to figure out what new restaurants have opened in Staten, on Staten Island and there's just not, like, nobody seems to be writing about it. I think I have to go over there and, like, just drive up and around. down the streets. Yeah, there was some, there was some coverage of um, of the restaurants that Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson. There was an, an article in the Times about how people are coming into a, any restaurant that they've been spotted in and asking, like, what they were like and what do they eat. And so there's, like, but that's the last time I've seen any Restaurant coverage. <laughs> it's just, it's just, <laughs> of Island. Yeah, yeah. Island. that's all that's available. Yeah.
1: Is it a thing that you get feedback about?
2: Um, yes, occasionally. I mean, like, I, I, it's funny that I feel like the most feedback of that kind that I've ever gotten is from like, elderly people on the upper west side who insist that i'm neglecting the upper west side (laughs) like and and i and i feel like i i've that's all been like third hand like someone will be like my uncle says you write too much about places downtown like what's going on on the upper west side um and the answer is not that
0: much,
2: <laughs> although like that's one of the things. Like every few months, I'll be like, I gotta write something about the Upper West Side, and I'll <laughs> I'll you know write to my two friends that live on the Upper West Side and ask them what's opened recently or what's exciting them. Other than that, I, I I feel like a lot of the reading of the column is done in a kind of it's it's a fantasy for people. So I don't I don't think like I mean I think some people are using it as like. A guide to New York and I think some people are genuinely going to these restaurants but I think um, I mean the re- the New Yorker has a, a very wide readership geographically and I think I do think people even people outside of New York read it
1: is it a lonely job
2: uh, no I think it, it's actually a very social job in that I almost always bring people with me to eat so it's like it's the only way I socialize at this point um but I mean I I think writing is a lonely pursuit no matter how you cut it so so yes the writing part feels very lonely but I think it's it's different than basically any other writing in that you're not only are you like like I guess if you're a theater critic you you might bring a friend to a play but you're presumably being polite and sitting silently watching the play together whereas when you take a friend to a restaurant review, like, you're you're talking as you would, you know, in any other circumstance um, where you're having dinner with someone. So in that sense, it's very social, although I do find myself sometimes realizing that I've, I've like, invited the wrong kind of person to a restaurant review who doesn't want to, like, talk about the food at all. Like, I don't – I'm not, like – I'm not so strict that I – it's, like, that we can't discuss other things, but – you have to be interested in the food, or else I, it, it, or else it's too distracting to me, and I can't focus on right. paying attention in the way that I need to be paying attention. Um, so,
1: do so you like try people out?
2: <laughs> I do try people out. <laughs> yeah. Or like, I'll, like I, I, I think I learned the hard way that like I can't use a restaurant review as a way to see someone that I've been needing to see. That's an actually an especially good example. It's like if I need if I'm if I'm needing to catch up with someone, or if like you know, my husband and I need to like, we, we, we've been saying we'd have dinner with this other couple for like six months. It's like, that is not the right <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> because and, you're like, working. Right, we're, exactly. I'm working and then, and then it's a different kind of work if you're socializing with someone you don't know that well. It's like, those two things are just so at odds. Like you can't be learning all about someone's, you know, background and like what they do for work and also be like taking furtive notes about, you know, how the <laughs> French fries were made or whatever. Um, so it is like, it's not pure socializing, but I don't think it's lonely. It's just that the writing is lonely.
1: Yeah, I mean, this might just be, like, my version of the Julia Roberts thing. But when I think about your job, there are aspects of it that seem incredible <laughs> and sort of like a fantasy. <laughs> like, my understanding from what you're talking about is basically that, like, assuming that your friends have some interest in food, you eat out all the time at new and exciting restaurants get to bring your friends <laughs> you don't even have to write about the place and yeah. someone else puts the bill david Rubnick <laughs> pays for all of this
2: yeah it's a pretty sweet gig well yeah well the the new house family pays for it i think um <laughs> but yeah no it's it's an amazing job and i don't take that for granted it's totally fun a lot of the time, but. It's also a job that stresses me out enormously at, at times. That that definitely I I think at its most fun. It's more fun than any other job that I could imagine personally. But that doesn't mean that it's not like when I'm if, if I'm not writing about a restaurant, I'm really stressed out about it. Like if I go to a place and I realize I can't write about it, I'm devastated <laughs> because I'm just like scrambling. You know, I just yeah. like it's it's like even if I've even if I'm kind of on top of things it's like I still have to file something that week and so like even, even if I'm like working a few columns ahead it still means that I'm suddenly gonna find myself probably backed into a corner where it's like what am I gonna write about this week it's just like the the a weekly a, writing anything on a weekly basis is really hard and I think it like I think it can seem simpler because it's Usually, things that are that come out weekly are short, um, and it sort of can seem like someone has just jotted something off because it's maybe only a few paragraphs. But I would argue that that is really challenging and it's it's like it's hard to write short hugely
1: stressed out (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) everyone should know that behind the scenes I'm enormously stressed out no but it is but yeah of course it's like it's super fun and it's it's literally my childhood fantasy like there's no and I I don't think I'll ever get sick of the theater of it like I love restaurants and I love going to a new restaurant and I love just the whole the whole like pageantry of it. I love sitting down and being handed a menu. I love looking at the menu online beforehand. I love, like, someone just bringing me, like, incredible things to try, even if they're not, if they don't end up being good or interesting, just, like, the sort of anticipation of it all. And, like, yeah, it's a totally thrilling, wonderful thing.
1: Do you think you can slash want slash will do this forever?
2: I don't know. I mean, I I could see a world in which I do it forever and and if you look around, like, people who do this tend to do it for a really long time and I yeah. think there's something really kind of amazing about that and, like, and I do feel like I've noticed, you know, that the longer I do it, the more of a relationship people feel like they have with me which I I, I like. Maybe that's, like, a totally egotistical thing to say but I feel like just very like it just it feels very validating to to realize that someone could have been reading me for the whole time I've been doing it and feels like it's something that they look forward to like I feel like people feel like we're in conversation in a way that is meaningful to me because I think that's how I like to be a reader and so to feel like I'm creating that experience for readers is really a cool thing but I also kind of can't imagine eating like this <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of my life or even for you know many more years it just like it doesn't it, it doesn't really feel sustainable um, clearly it is for some people but it's just like it is such an excessive thing like I I'm not a person who can control myself particularly so it's like if I go out to eat like I'm eating everything I'm not like I'm not, like, I I think there are people who will have one bite of something or who just are very just careful about what they're eating and how they're eating. And I just, like, I I totally just let myself go into the experience. Um, And that seems, like, dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, so far it's been fine, but I don't know, just I feel like aging and eating <laughs> it's like you have to at, at some point kind of rein it in right i don't yeah. know so it won't be the like
1: <laughs> schedule stress and it won't be the like lack of casual eating it's just like it might be too much food
2: yeah well it is yeah it's a lot of food it's like it, yeah just like and restaurant food is is very different than food that anybody makes at home you know it's like it's like i don't think the body is, is meant to eat like that yeah Every single day, it's like a it's like a high impact sport. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in some so ways.
1: Yeah, it sounds to me like what you're saying is, like, uh yeah, like you'd like to play forever. Yeah, but you, like Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah, but, but Tom Brady at some point like started like you know only eating like strawberries, a, a quarter of an <laughs> avocado a yeah. day. Yeah, or does he not
2: eat strawberries? He either eats strawberries or doesn't He might eat, eat like yeah. one
1: strawberry, yeah. like yeah. cut up, uh, right, over several right. hours, right. You're gonna have to get into like pliability.
2: Exactly. Yeah, but but on the other hand, I, I remember when I when I got the job, a friend said to me, "Oh, so you're just done? Like this is what you're gonna do for the rest of your life?" And I hadn't that hadn't really occurred to me. I was like, "Yeah, maybe." <laughs> and so maybe I I could totally see myself looking up in 20 years and being like, "Wow, I'm still the restaurant." I mean, a lot of things have to fall into place for that to to be true. Like the magazine industry has to (laughs) keep afloat, so knock on wood. Um, But it is hard to imagine giving up something that has so many obvious advantages.
1: I mean, imagine how disappointed 10-year-old Hannah would
2: be. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. And what would I do? What would I do after? It's like, if you achieve your ultimate childhood dream what do you what do you do after that i don't want to know seems (laughs) seems scary
1: (laughs) sounds to me like you got to start doing pliability stuff okay thanks so much for doing this thanks for having me thanks for listening to long form I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode. Megan Valley handled the show notes. Thanks to both of them. Thanks to Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks to Hannah Goldfield. Her New Yorker column is called Tables for Two. We'll see you next week.